Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand your consciousness, stimulate your thought, enhance your physical and mental health, and encourage community. I hope this finds you all well this morning. Today we have an interview with Ken Paul Rosenthal, a filmmaker whose film, Whisper Rapture, is playing at the Mendocino Film Festival this Saturday, June 2nd, at 10 o'clock in Crown Hall. Some of you will remember Ken Paul Rosenthal's work um, called Crooked Beauty, which won an award at the film festival a few years ago. You'll want to see this film, and you're going to want to listen to this interview, so stay tuned. But first, an editorial comment. It's about mental illness. Yes, what mental illness, which has a long history, going back 5,000 years, perhaps even further. Mental illness. Why do we call it illness? How is it, how is it that we treat people who act differently than the vast majority as if they're ill? How is it that we relate to them as they're deficient rather than simply different? Is it because when they don't fit in, they don't contribute? Is it because they create problems? Is it because they are dangerous? Why is it that we look at them and act towards them in such a manner? The, the issue of diagnosing people, of putting labels on them, has been so much a part of my life for the last 50 years that in the name of transparency, I should say that I'm not an unbiased observer or just your host of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics today. And so in that name of transparency, let me say that what you hear from me today, both personally and professionally, are my views and not the views of KZYX or National Public Radio. For the last 50 years, there have been many of us within my profession who have worked hard towards removing the stigma of labels from people. We don't call people who have pneumonia, pneumonia. We say, there's Fred and he has pneumonia. We don't call people who have broken bones, broken bones. We don't say, hey, there's a broken leg. We say, hey, there's Harriet and she has a broken leg. And yet, and yet, when it comes to psychological issues and psychological and emotional behaviors, we have come to a place where we, we refer to the person as if they are the disease. We, call, we say, to look, he's schizophrenic. He's a schizophrenic. We don't say, that's Joseph, and he's suffering from something called schizophrenia. We say, look, I'm meeting with a group of addicts. No, we're not meeting with a group of addicts. I've never met with a group of addicts, though I treat people who are suffering from addiction. I treat people who are suffering from addiction. 
They're people first. We're all people first. And yet, in this area of what's referred to as mental illness, people take on their, their diagnosis. They become, I'm bipolar. They become, I am bipolar. That's, who, that's my identity. I am schizophrenic. I am a neurotic. I, I am, I'm an obsessive-compulsive. And so the person's identity then gets transfixed around their illness and around their diagnosis. It's unimaginable, and yet it's real. 5,000 years ago, we used to drill holes in people's heads. It was called trepanning. And we used to drill holes in their heads in order to let out evil spirits. Yes, priests, doctors would do rituals and drill into their heads in order to let this stuff out. Sometime later, the ancient Hebrews believed that illness was inflicted upon humans by God as a punishment for committing sin. Demons were thought to cause the illnesses and they were attributed to God's wrath. Moving forward, what did we do? Mental illness was then attributed to supernatural force, a, a, a displeased deity. But again, it was called illness. It was called illness. The beliefs about these illnesses and the treatments, they altered. But between the 5th and 3rd centuries before the Common Era, the Greek physician Hippocrates he denied the long-held belief that mental illness was caused by supernatural forces. And in, instead, he proposed that it occurred from natural occurrences in the human body, particularly some kind of pathology in the brain. What could he do? What kind of treatment could be offered to the person? How do we get these humors out of the brain? Hmm... Sometimes the, the people were left to be taken care of by their families. Sometimes by the communities. Nobody knew quite what to do. People were given emetics, laxatives. They were bled with leeches. But nobody knew quite what to do. Then, somewhere around 792 in the Common Era, we had the first mental hospital. Yes, and where was it? In Baghdad, of all places. Then, such places proliferated. There were establishments of asylums and institutions to take people away from the custody of their family and restrain them. There became a stigma that was attached to these people. When families couldn't, when families couldn't, treat their, their, their family, their loved ones in the home when they couldn't care for them, they were ashamed and they locked them in the cellars. They, they caged them up with the animals in pig pens. They put them in the control of servants if they had servants. Others were just simply abandoned and left to a life of begging and vagrancy. And this, this went on. These people were beaten. They were thrown in jail. They were thrown in dungeons. The asylums proliferated. They became a business. 
in the 1500s to the 1800s, they were chained, they were locked up. Finally, in England, in 1547, they built an asylum that was so horrific that it earned the nickname Bedlam. You've all heard the word Bedlam. And then other places started around the world. Mexico, South America, places were built where people could send people to get them out of the way so that they wouldn't see them. They, people weren't, they, there were no attempts at cures. There was some purging and bloodletting, but basically they were locked up. They were, and everything imaginable was practiced on them. Gyrating chairs and shaking up their blood and holding them upside down. And this went on and on for hundreds of years until there were, in the 1800s there was a humanitarian movement and what became known as moral treatment took place. Yes, all of a sudden people said, Why, how about if we just are nice to them? How about if we just gave them some kind of jobs in these hospitals? How about if we just tr treated them with air and food and water and love? And moral treatment took place. But it didn't last very long because moral treatment was very difficult. And instead, and instead they started to build businesses around the hospitals and there became a whole period of time where mental patients had to work on farms and work with animals. The first mental hospital I ever worked at in 1960, that's 50 years ago, at Le in Lake Winnipesaukee in, in New Hampshire, it was called the Laconia State School for the Mentally Retarded and Emotionally Disturbed. It was a farm, and everybody that could possibly work on the farm worked on the farm. And those that couldn't work on the farm, they were often, if they acted out, if they acted funny, if they were difficult to treat, they were wrapped in sailcloth, heavy sailcloth canvas, and they were sprayed with cold water. Some of them were lobotomized. Prefrontal lobotomy, piece of the brain, was severed off from the rest of the brain. Some of them were given massive doses of shock therapy. This was pre-psychotropic medicine. And then we moved on to a period where psychotropic medicine came into being. We moved past insulin shock treatment. We moved past drilling holes. And we moved to what is called the straitjacket of the mind. Our special guest today is Ken Paul Rosenthal, an independent filmmaker, photographer, and educator. His current work explores the geography of madness through the regenerative power of nature, urban landscapes, home movies, and archival footage from social hygiene films. Ken is the recipient of a Kodak Cinematography Award, numerous festival awards, and is recognized for his media work in mental health advocacy. Ken holds an MA in Creative and Interdisciplinary Arts, a Master's in Fine Arts in Cinema Production, and has taught films as a means of cultivating personal vision in workshops and universities in North America and abroad. Ken's poetic documentary project, 
Mad Dance, a mental health film trilogy, re-envisions the way we think, speak, and feel about mental distress and wellness in today's chaotic world. These transformative films offer new maps for navigating madness with insight, healing, and hope. To date, Ken's films have collectively won 18 awards, screened at 59 film festivals, and have been presented in person at dozens of peer support networks, universities, mental health symposia, and community events worldwide. One of the three films in the trilogy, Crooked Beauty, won the best documentary short at the Mendocino Film Festival just a few years ago. His new film, Whisper Rapture, a bonfire Madigan suite, is a music and mental health documentary opera featuring new compositions by cellist vocalist Madigan Shive. This film, Whisper Rapture, a bonfire Madigan suite, will be shown at this year's Mendocino Film Festival at 10 a.m. this coming Saturday, June 2nd, in Crown Hall. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Ken Paul. Thank you, Richard. Wonderful to be here. Last time we talked, it was a few years ago when you presented Crooked Beauty here at the Mendocino Film Festival. This time, you're presenting Whisper Rapture. Start out, Ken, please, by giving us some background about how this film came about. Madigan Scheib is the founding collective member, one of the three founding collective members of the Icarus Project, a peer-led mental health support network by and for people who struggle with extreme emotional experiences commonly labeled as mental illnesses. So by way of making Crooked Beauty, which profiled one of the two founding members, I met Madigan Scheib. And I became intoxicated with her music and her dedication to mental health advocacy at the grassroots level. And when I first conceived of making a film about her music, that's all it was. It was a vehicle just for the music. But then I felt, hmm, so I really just want to make a long form music video. Get, as I got to know Madigan and become more intimate with the details of her life and her lived experience as someone who'd been labeled as mentally ill, I decided that the film would be much richer if it incorporated her the narrative of her life into the suite of six songs that make up the entire film. Tell and, us. Uh, yes, go ahead, please. Well, I was going to say that, um, so I decided to interview her uh, off camera and just have her voice. And I decided that we would hear her speaking about her life and experiences with the mainstream psychiatric system in between each of her songs. And that the songs would literally emerge out of the narrative chapters of her life. But I got more than I bargained for because uh, we spoke for a total of 10 hours, three interviews over the course of 10 hours. And what emerged was a parallel narrative about her mother's life. And I, as much as I knew Madigan, I never knew this aspect of her life. I never knew that her mother had significant trauma that she'd experienced in her youth up through her young adulthood. And the way Madigan inherited that 
in her own uh, domestic experience growing up with her mother was, uh, frankly, it it, it could have filled a whole feature-length film in itself. So her mother basically became kind of a a shadow or parallel character, and uh, although the film is primarily about Madigan, her mom's story bookends the film. Your theme, as I said in my introduction, your basic theme is one of what I think you refer to as mental health advocacy. Is that correct? Yes. And please elaborate on that for our listeners. What, what is mental health advocacy? What are, you well, ad- what are you advocating for? What do you want to see changed? Please elaborate. Yeah. Boy, that's a really big question. I have to be careful. I could talk for quite a long time about that. Take but, your time, Ken. We've got plenty of time. Okay. Um, you know, there's an activist and there's an advocate. You know, when I think of an activist, regardless of the political stripe, um, I think it's someone who's really doing the work on the ground level every single day. Or maybe, you know, in you know, as, as, on, as a politician. But when I think about an advocate... I think maybe something a a bit more humble, maybe someone who has values and ideas that are put into action that manifests in a way that may not be purely political. It may be happening through art. It may be happening through a community. And uh, the Icarus Project is an advocacy model for uh, re- um, finding new language for how we speak about mental distress, for finding ways to undo the narrative that if you um, have been given a, a, a diagnosis by mainstream society, that we don't, we don't, our narrative is not one about damage and disease and despair. It's not that there's a bio chemical knot around our neck and we're, we're damaged in our heads, but that there is lived experience. There are, there are aspects of um, living in Western culture that, well, basically the idea of madness as a reflection of a social condition rather than it being just about a mental one. And as an advocate, you're, you're learning how to uh, re-embrace, boy, Robert, I'm, um, Richard, I know we're kind of live here and I'm not editing, but I'm really having problems articulating myself this morning. This this part will have to be edited out, but I'm, I'm going to make another go at it, okay? You're doing fine, Ken. You're well, doing fine. We're talking about something something that, that my profession has talked about, and you're joining in with your films. Uh, as you know, the work of Thomas Saz, one of his books is called The Myth of Mental Illness. Yeah. So there are, there are many people, myself included, who are right in line with your thinking and what you're bringing to us in the films, in the sense that we want to be advocates and we see these people as other-abled rather than disabled. Yeah. Let me, I'm going to back up to um, your, where you first asked me the question. As a, as a mental health advocate, I feel my job is to um, pursue a different way of considering where the idea of 
mental illness comes from, that it's not just about a condition of the mind, it's not about our being diseased and damaged in our heads, but that madness is also a reflection of a social condition. So those of us who have either been labeled or struggle with extreme sensitivities that get commonly labeled as illnesses, we have a job to uh, reach out from the cultural paradigms of what constitutes normalcy and find new models for how we discuss and experience being in mental distress. And we do that in community. We do that by finding a new language. We do that by making films that advocate for our lived experiences rather than uh, uh, the, the models that perhaps uh, the DSM compartmentalizes our experience into. So that's why I make films that also don't uh, follow traditional documentary forms. I feel like when I see someone sitting in a chair in front of a camera that suggests that there's an off-screen uh, interviewer and a microphone not too far away from their face, there's, there's kind of a madness to that setup. To me, uh, it's the way I felt when I was used to, to be on a film set where you're in a dark climate-controlled room and you're basically told you to stand in one place until they're ready to shoot. And uh, everyone's very compartmentalized in their, duty, in their duties on a traditional film set. And I think there's some, a similar kind of compartmentalizing in a conventionally constructed documentary. So I'm trying to make films that not only about stories that are more authentic, but also embody the speaking subject in a way that's more authentic. And that may mean not seeing the person who's speaking. It may be more like radio where we're hearing their story in voiceover, but I'm using other images to embody what they're saying. And I think when you're working in this more poetic mode, the more lyrical mode rather than a more literal one, then we're not, we're not just perpetuating uh, the idea of what the crazy other person looks like but instead opening up a space where there's uh, more of a relationship to the heart of what the people are saying. And I think when you're dealing with metaphor, it's more universal. Um, it's not as bound to a certain culture or a certain time or a certain um, mode of thinking. When you first met Madigan and you, you were struck by her story, um, and started to think about uh, putting it together uh, with a film. Were you immediately aware of her intense relationship with her cello that people are going to see when they watch the film? I really didn't. Um, I I had known Madigan for a number of years on a, as a friend ah. through the Icarus Project before we started making the film. And when I think about that relationship prior to me interviewing her, it was extremely superficial in comparison. I had seen her perform and I'd seen her, I, I, I didn't even see her howl into the cello. I had never seen her lift the cello over her head. So when there was one performance, we had a house concert here in my place where I lived to raise some funds for the film. And when I saw her laying down with the cello, when I saw her screaming, uh, uh, into the F hole of the cello, it was a, a whole new relationship 
to her instrument that I knew had to be explored when we began doing the formal interviews for the film. And indeed, in the film, the, the, the F-hole became a metaphor for the hole that was in her bedroom wall as a child through which she, she spoke to her fantasy companion, Whisper, hence the name of the film, Whisper Rapture. Several times so far during the interview, uh, you've mentioned uh, Madigan's connection and your connection to something uh, called the Icarus Project. And for you listeners, uh, you can Google uh, the Icarus Project very easily. Uh, I'm just going to read something to you uh, from their website just to give you a feeling for what they're about. The Icarus Project is a support network and education project by and for people who experience the world in ways that are often diagnosed as mental illness. We advance social justice by fostering mutual aid practices that reconnect healing and collective liberation. We transform ourselves through transforming the world around us. And then it says, learn more about our mission, vision, and values and what we do. And you can do that if you'll take the time to look at their website. I think it's important that you do for a fuller understanding of what Ken Paul Rosenthal is about and what his films are about. Because they, they, they really it's really a different way of looking at what is referred to as mental illness. And it's really a way, and, and correct me if you disagree here, Ken, but it, it's really... A, under the headline, if you will, of different doesn't mean deficient. Right. Yeah. And you can parallel that even to being an artist or, in my case, a filmmaker in our culture. You know, we have very, very clear ideas about what constitutes a real filmmaker. It's someone that creates uh, three act narratives and there's a suspension of disbelief, you know, because in film time, of course, it's not like time out in the world. Everything's very compressed, but we don't question that. And it's all very carefully orchestrated uh, to pull you through the narrative and follow the hero's journey and experience their obstacles and so on. And again, it's like I was explaining before, it's all kind of very orchestrated. And I, I'm really interested in the way Hollywood and mainstream psychiatry uh are parallel in their privileging of power and profit over insight and integration. And uh, I'm really interested in, um, in creating a more authentic experience that may not be what people are used to watching. It's, it's privileging the, the poetic or, or the metaphor over the literal and directive. But if I'm going to make a film about someone who is looking for a more authentic way, a, a, a sort of alternative uh, way of making meaning of their madness than what conventional psychiatry would prescribe, then the script for my films have to be similarly uh, authentic and, and not quite as directive and literal. And I think for audiences that aren't tutored in that, be it, again, on the side of how you deal with your mental health or how you watch a film that could be challenging. It could be considered alternative. It could be considered, um, you know, uh, well, just, just not, uh, effective. And I think, uh, 
you know, it's it's like uh, this essay that I hope to share a little bit with you. But, uh, you know, our shadows are something that we're encouraged to turn away from. Uh, you know, you face the light and the shadow falls behind you. But what if you were to face your shadow and let the warmth of the sun, the light, as it were, fall on your back? Uh, there's a lot of um, meaning in the madness. And if we sort of go towards the dark side and see what the answers could be for the questions that the darkness provides us, well, that could be where our, our wellness, our, our wellness um, exists. Uh, there's that great quote by Carl Jung, uh, if you get rid of the pain before you have answered its questions, you get rid of the self along with it. So uh, there's something to be said about moving towards those uncomfortable places. And I feel like my job as a filmmaker and mental health advocate is, okay, if I'm going to create a film that is not traditional and on top of that in its structure, but then on top of that be about a difficult subject like uh, mental distress, how can I create an experience for the viewer that uh, makes it easy to navigate these uh, uh, disquieting experiences. And that's why my stated goal is to help alleviate human suffering by cultivating beauty. So to get back to your earlier question as an advocate, that's, that's the heart of what I do. Um, I try and make my films as beautiful to watch as possible, even though they're about very, very uh, dark uh, experiences. You, a moment ago, you referenced an article that you wrote, a beautiful essay actually, called From Demonizing to Dancing with Our Shadow. And before the program, I asked you if you'd be so kind as to read a piece of it for our listeners. Might you be willing to do that right now? Yeah. Uh, shall I start? Yes, please. This is, this is Ken Paul Rosenthal uh, re reading. And by the way, you can get to his website very easily. You just go to Google and type in Ken Paul Rosenthal. You'll be on his website. It's a great website. It's got all kinds of information about him and about his films, and uh, including a list of different essays that he's written. And now here's Ken reading from one of his essays. We live in a culture that pathologizes difference based on race, gender, sexual orientation, and economic class. And that's crazy-making. Jay Krishnamurti said, it's no measure of wellness to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. My creative work is an antidote to the institutionalized roots of trauma that are embedded in the media-based narratives of damage, despair, and terror that oppress us on a daily basis. As a filmmaker, and as someone who has been labeled and medicated for my mental distress, I've observed how identical Hollywood and mainstream psychiatry are in their privileging of power and profit over insight and integration. Hollywood's generic characterizations and conventional storytelling techniques are deliberately constructed to hold our hands and guide us along a prescribed path of how and when to think and feel. Our societal prescription for wellness has a parallel directive, untie the biochemical knot in our heads and medicate our shadows into submission. Such compartmentalizing is like standing so close to a pointillist painting that nothing can be observed beyond a single dot. However, when we take a few steps back, whether from the painting or ourselves, 
we perceive both the big picture and the whole person as a matrix of many interdependent dots or traumatic experiences. My yoga teacher suggests that we can change our positions, our patterns, from the outside in. This is very different than our cultural ideology, which is about fixing yourself internally, picking yourself up by your own bootstraps, and shaming your shame because big boys do not cry. But like a yoga pose, we can reposition our actions out in the world and heal ourselves in relationship to others. Perhaps the best way to get over ourselves is to get out of ourselves. So much of my own healing from my childhood trauma has manifested through service to others. The job of the poet is to make grief beautiful, which is not meant to glorify trauma in any way whatsoever. I simply believe that the most transformative pathway to the head is through the heart. As an artist, I know that beauty is the gateway to the heart. Beauty can give access to parts of our experience as humans, beings, being human that we may not otherwise have the words for. And as an activist, I am very clear that my job is to transpose stories with as much compassion as possible so that lived experience can function as a touchstone for healing collectively. Well, that, that's very beautiful, and thank you so much for reading it. I'd, would you be willing to talk, you referenced uh, your own diagnosis and medication, and I'd like you to talk a, a bit about that, if, if it's okay with you, Paul, uh, Ken Paul. Yeah. About, it, well, please, give us a little history of yourself, and, and, and then we'll talk about that in relation to your movies. Yeah, I, I will say it's it's on the one hand, um, I have to be frank, it's nowhere near as dramatic or extreme as the subjects of my films. At the same time, it, I have experienced enough where where I can empathize with them. And, and I remember when I was speaking to Jax McNamara, the hero of my first mental health documentary, Crooked Beauty, and one of the two co-founders of the Icarus Project, and I said, you know, I don't know if I'm crazy enough to be part of the Icarus Project. And the reply Jax gave me was, well, if you identify with our mission, you're one of us. So I've spent years in therapy. I've been on and off various medications. Uh, I even spent a night in the psych ward. Um, there was a time a few years back where I almost went back again. And ironically, the things that often push me, the experiences that often push me over the brink is when I'm making these films because I become so close to the story the stories uh, of the heroes of my films. And again, I, I have a pow the power of deep empathy. So I'm taking on their experiences so vividly that it pushes all the buttons from my own lived experience. So I've never received a formal um, pathology like bipolar. And from my readings, I would, I suppose, if, you had, if I had to give myself a label, it would be hypo- hypothymatic, which means that uh, I cycle quickly through my emotions. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't spend a lot of time at either end of the so-called spectrum. I, I move back and forth quickly, and that certainly has its own challenges. But over the years, through uh, meditation and through diet and through my mindfulness practice, I've learned to notice what my triggers are out in the world. Because, you know, part of the dangerous gift, which is a term that the Icarus Project created, of, of being deeply sensitive um, is that you're porous. 
And so the gift part of that is that, well, as a very porous person, I can absorb a lot of what's around me and deeply empathize with things and transpose that into my creative work. And arguably, those don't have those powers of transposition. They're the ones who go off the deep end, the ones who don't have the tools to manage their sensitivities. The dangerous part of the dangerous gift is when you feel things so deeply that you're so porous, I would guess I would liken my constitution to a sponge that's always dry and is constantly absorbing in a constant state of osmosis that it's often too much for me to handle. And that creates a kind of madness. Um, uh, Let me stop you right there. Yeah. Okay, our listeners are hearing that, and I think they're understanding. You're talking about porousness to emotional state. So it means that you're letting a great deal of emotional material in. You're sensitive to it. You feel a lot. You feel other people's feelings. And now you just described a situation whereby so much was coming in at the same time that, in my words, you feel overwhelmed by the so much. Does that resonate? Yeah, and I would say it's not emotions that pour in. It's just you're stimulated by the phenomena of the world, both you know, uh, constructed and, and of the natural world. You're just all your channels are open all the time and it's it's a very dangerous gift and you know maybe the the people who are uh labeled ad uh add it may not be just that from internally they're they're uh they're 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 they've got too much uh internal activity but they're just so sensitive to what's going around them that they're simply channeling the constant flow of stimulation that we're bombarded with from um, contemporary society, you know, we we, we just where we we how can one not if even if even if you're you're a common citizen who doesn't have a constitution with these sort of uh, this porousness that I'm describing in myself, uh, how do you not be fragmented by the stream of information that we're you know social media is 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 just really breaks up our ability to um, to put uh, two thoughts together because we constantly have access to so many channels uh, and, and people and sources of information outside of us. How can we possibly collect it all? How can we possibly make, make, make meaning uh, in a world that is sort of becoming increasingly fragmented and, and increasingly virtual uh, where we're being pulled outside of our own inbred sanity. You know, I just had a thought, I hope I'm not uh, digressing too much, but when I started this film four years ago, Whisper Rapture, I uh, put myself um, on a on an island of 800 people called uh, Hornby Island. It's nine hours north of Vancouver, Canada. And it was sort of like a self-residency. And I lived in a little cabin in the middle of a redwood forest. And for that month, I experienced no emotional violence internally, no distress of any sort. And it was because I was embedded in nature in a place where uh, everything flowed, grew, blossomed, ripened, died. 
uh, organically. There was no sense of things being broken up or fragmented. I wasn't pulled out of myself. I was completely sewn into the um, natural fabric of that environment. And it was so profoundly different than living here in a city that it really made an impression on me that each of us has a responsibility to, to place great care and attention and as much of our resources as possible into choosing the environment that, that, that we live and work in. Because that, again, if we're going to think, if we're going to consider madness as a reflection of a social con- condition of the environments we live in, rather than purely as a psychological one, as a mental one, then we have to think about the conditions that, uh, that we are thriving in or, or dying in. Or dying in. Well, you certainly came up with another tool for your tool bag, which you described earlier as being education, diet, awareness, methods of dealing with the overstimulation. You added, from my perspective, what might be called prescription-grade nature. I call that RX capital N, prescription-grade nature. Beautiful. And, And... That is something, of course, for all people listening who resonate to what you're talking about in terms of overstimulation. You might picture it as 5, 10, 15, or 20 different highways of information coming at each of us all at once, maybe more than 20. And what Ken is pointing out is if you've got that many different tubes or highways of information coming at you, how do you focus on any one? This is a very interesting point he's making. How do you focus on one when the other 19 are competing for your attention? How might a child in school who has been diagnosed with ADD, how do they focus on one topic when their internal system or the external environment is sending messages that their porous system is picking up so that they've got 19 other channels going at the same time. It may not be their inability to focus. It may be simply that they're being so heavily distracted from focusing. And so from that sense, it's really a misdiagnosis. They don't have attention deficit. They have a distraction disorder. They're being disordered by distractions. Very well said. And it's really, you know, the way social media plays into it. I mean, you just have to take a walk. Look, look outside. Everyone has their head buried in their social uh, media device. It's it's really heartbreaking. Uh, I Sometimes when I'm on public transportation, I'll entertain myself and pick my head up from out of my book. Or, you know, I just love to people watch and and and. And it's extraordinary. Literally 99 percent of the other people have their heads buried in in their uh, in their cell phone uh, or even walking around in public. There's a whole world around them. It's it's just even a matter of personal safety. You know, I, I really don't feel like, uh, you know, this is some sort of, you know, uh, marginal ideology or that I'm trying to say how people should or shouldn't live. I'm not trying to judge cell phones, but it's it's become sort of like the cart. People say it's just a tool. But it's really like the cart leading the horse. You know, this tool is profoundly changing the way we not only interact with one another 
and the larger world, but ourselves. How can we possibly listen to ourselves? How can we possibly face our shadows and make that mindful inquiry if we're constantly subsuming to the virtual light of our uh, social network devices? And this is why the images of my film are nature-based, primarily. Uh, I'm trying to return people to nature and use nature as the metaphorical embodiment for whatever the narrative is that the subject of the film is articulating. That way, I think when people leave the theater and they return to the world, maybe they won't look at a tree the same way. Maybe they won't look at water the same way. Maybe they'll relate to it not as just concrete objects, but as metaphors through which they can reflect on their own mental distress, much as the film does. I want the film to be pleasurable uh, in, in a very deep, profound way. I want it to speak to something that's primal in people, which is that we're still made up of flesh and blood. It's our, our, our waking lives may be increasingly like a matrix scenario, but at the same time, there's still something in us that uh, universally responds to natural stimulation. And if I can provoke that or open up a place to experience that in the theater with my imagery, then perhaps I'm giving people a tool to uh, reinvestigate their own madness on the path to wellness. As we're talking, Ken, I find myself wondering whether we should continue to use the word madness. And maybe, maybe the word in and of itself is something that we should replace with, with something else that's both more descriptive and, and has less baggage and negativity connected to it. When you, I, when you talk about overstimulation, that's very clear. When I picture those 20 highways or 20 tubes of information coming right at me, or 15 or 30, that's very clear. Madness has all kinds of baggage. When I think of the word mad, madness, it, it, it brings up images of people running and screaming in the streets and being chained to walls and all kinds of negative stuff from the movies and from books and so on that's, that's very unpleasant. I think we ought to team up and see if we can find some better language for that one. You know, my invitation to the Icarus Project was through language. Uh, you know, when we say something, we make it so. So I agree with you 100%. We need to be very mindful about the words we use. But language is a very slippery thing, and it's changing all the time. And, you know, it's like the word queer was been, has been reclaimed. And I think that's what's happening in the radical mental health movement. Madness is a word that's been reclaimed. It's a word that we use with pride. Um, I agree that it's not the perfect word, and they're changing all the time. I can't tell you how many times I've introduced my films by talking about language, and I make a polite request that we not use the expression mental illness. Yes. And yet people will defer to it all the time during the Q&A when speaking about their own experience. They're taking the language that the... Uh, that the, the mainstream psychiatry has given them and using it to refer to their own authentic experiences, despite the fact that we just watched a film that was all about a more authentic way of um, addressing and articulating your, your lived experience with mental distress. 
So it's it's slippery. Um, madness, I think, the problem for me with the word madness is that, <clears throat> excuse me, it's very, it, it sounds like the anger. Like it has exactly. the weight of, of, of emotional yes. stream. But it's also, there's a pride behind the reclamation of it and using it in a way that's not about um, illness, yes. but about saying mad pride. And it's, it's you know, it. I think there's a kind of has to be an on, you know, you talk about advocacy, advocacy is about education too. And, and, you know, it's about how can we, we teach people to um, use words in a, in a different context. I think context is everything, but it's, it's, it's ongoing. You know, I've, I have presented um, a version of this film at a conference, uh, a, 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 a mental health Congress in Potsdam, Germany this past September and they banned the word uh, mental mental health. You think, well, what's wrong with mental health? And they said, well, because of the mental. So they changed it to emotional health. And I thought that sounded wonderful, but it doesn't roll off the tongue as easily as mental health. Because <laughs> we've been trained. Right, but, but emotional health comes really close, right? Because the idea, again, that it's not just this mental problem, but it's it's about our emotions and and. And everything governs our emotions. So it just it widens the field. It's really broad. But how can you speak about something as broad as emotional health without language that's more specific? Yes. So it, it's ongoing. You it's know. ongoing. It's always changing. Folks, the person you were just listening to is filmmaker Ken Paul Rosenthal. He's here today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. We're talking about a film... Whisper Rapture, a bonfire, Madigan, Rhapsody. It's an opera. It's it's a film. It is beautiful. It's going to be at the Mendocino Film Festival this Saturday morning, 10 o'clock at Crown Hall. As you were talking, Ken, I, I thought of a story that I wanted to share. Recently, I, I saw someone who I hadn't seen in maybe seven or eight years. And uh, I was with my wife, Jolie. And we saw this lady and her husband and family. And upon meeting, the the first thing she said to, to, to my wife was, your husband Richard saved my life. And I said, I, you know, I was, I was awestruck. I didn't know what she was referring to at all. And I said, what? She said, you saved my life. I said, how? What did I do? And she said, some years ago, when we had our terrible tragedy in our family, you came and visited us, and I was in deep distress, and, I, and my doctors had given me a whole bunch of different medications to take. And you said to me, don't take any of those medications. What you're going through from this tragedy is part of life, and the feelings that you're going to have are part of life's feelings. And if you let yourself have them, they will be painful, and then they will subside, and eventually, to a great extent, you will heal. But if you take all those medicines, you'll just numb yourself, and the feelings will never heal. They'll just be in there. And she said, and I listened to you, and a friend of mine had a similar event happen. And by the way, the tragedy was the loss of a child, of a baby, and it was terrible. 
And she said, this friend of mine had a similar event and she lost a child. And she decided to take the medications and she's never recovered. And to this day, eight years later, she's still, she's still suffering. And I think this story really ties in with, with your films and your work and your philosophy. Because what, it, what it, it's saying is that feeling our feelings and having them and living with them is part of the life experience. And it's certainly not necessarily in any way pathology or illness. It's simply part of the human condition. Yeah. And, but that's, that's, a, 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 unfortunately, it's in our culture, that's considered like kind of a, a utopian idea, you know, because if someone's suffering, they're not going to care about someone saying, well, you, you have to face it, you have to embrace it. That's life, you know, um, and what we need to do is, is what you just said is something that people need to be made sent. They need to be sensitized to from a very, very early age. Otherwise, it's just going to sound. Um, it's it's going to pe people want silver bullets in our culture. You know, they want something that's over the counter. They want a quick fix. They don't want to do the work. And if we've not been raised in a culture where we're educated to do that, it's, 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 well, I think that's why you have a lot of people's addictions, you know, to, to pain meds and, and opiates. I mean, the original me meaning of compassion is to suffer together. And what we need to have is, is a more of a, a community effort. You know, uh, I, I think again, as when I, I read from my essay before, and I was referring to finding healing outside of ourselves, I think we have to look to support and, uh, uh, you know, healing is, is a mutual endeavor. It's, it's not just about we're screwed up. Um, but I think if we're too busy, again, isolating ourselves, becoming more uh, individualized in the way we navigate the world and not cultivating community um, then from a, a young age, then I think we're, we're kind of like going down a, ra a rabbit's hole. And, and I don't mean to be um, pessimistic about it, but I feel that uh, we're, we're, we're living in increasingly chaotic times. You know, you'd like to think about the arc of human evolution as becoming more refined, more respectful, um, more supportive. Um, and in a lot of ways, it's a really interesting time, right? Because you do have communities that have been marginalized are now being more respected and given a voice. Um, obviously, I'm talking about the Me Too movement. And the Me Black Too Lives movement? Yes. And Black Lives Matter. I mean, all these things. But at the same time, there's still so much strife and so much chaos in the world. And, yes. I, and I just feel like these are all mental health issues. All the all, all these things like tie into, you know, our our, our wellness. That's why I'm so uh, obsessed with making these these films and just with mental health, because every mental health is an umbrella for for everything we're challenged with as, as as human beings on the planet. But I just feel like the madness of our times is is even happening on the environmental level. How can any one person possibly not go mad? How can any one person uh, have the constitution to fix themselves? No, it, it has to be done in community. We have to suffer together and we have to, um, I think um, wellness is something that is a practice 
that has to be skillfully engaged from a young level uh, from from it, it should be people should be taught meditation and mindfulness in school. Can you imagine if that happened from the grade school level on? I'm looking forward to it happening. Teaching meditation, mindfulness, and awareness training in grade school, definitely. And that's why your film is so important and films like it are so important, Ken, because we're talking about cultural change. We're yeah. talking about the people listening to this program benefiting by, from what you're saying by coming to the realization that if they have some of what these are referred to as, quote, mental illnesses, that there are other ways of looking at these events for them, that they are not set in stone for the rest of their lives, meant to suffer in the way that Madigan Shive, in your beautiful film, talks about how she was told at an early age that she would have to live a quiet life that she should never count on a regular job, she should never count on having children, and so on and so on. Basically, you know, the old A of adultery, this is the the MI of mental illness, was tattooed onto her forehead, and she had to spend her life, as she has, overcoming this and dealing with it in a way that allows her a sense of freedom. And and that's what what your film and and films like yours are all about for me. It's about it's about staying hopeful, Ken, and, and keeping the good fight going so that we can liberate and not be continue to be to, to suffer. We, we, we want to come out of the the age where we were chained, where people with these so-called illnesses were chained to the walls as they were spun around in chairs, had hell, had holes drilled in their heads. And now we live in an age of medication where people are being made into zombies on, on great grand scales, as you well know, and walking around in a stupor rather than living their lives. Right. And it's, it's not just that, Oh, I, I, I need a silver bullet. I need a pill to make this. I mean, imagine how desperate you are that you would need a pill that, and it's because you don't know anything else. It's not because the pills are good or bad. I mean, there's a lot of problem with medication. The, the, the radical mental health movement isn't anti-medication. It just problematizes medication because we live in a culture where we're taught it's a panacea. And that's the only thing we have. But, um, but there, there are other options. I mean, if I can quote Lisa Simpson from the, 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 the show on TV, she said, the blues is like a fire in the belly that comes out of your mouth. So you better put an instrument in front of it. What if you don't have an instrument? And that's why it's, you know, it's perfect. Maddox and Shive in my film, Whisper Rapture, is a cellist. So her instrument, literally, it's not just instrument metaphorically, but like Lisa Simpson, who played the saxophone uh, in, the, in the cartoon, uh, Madigan has a cello. And that instrument was her vehicle. And it was the way... It was her path to wellness, and, and it, it's, it's her ongoing way to manage the madness she experiences. Because, again, uh, it's one way that, that Madigan and I are in parallel paths because we are both deeply sensitive people. And it's not just about getting well. It's about wellness as a practice. Um, that's a, that's, that was very beautifully said. We're about running out of time, Ken. Is there any last thing you want to say about your film, A Whisper Rapture, before we wrap it up? Well, um, yeah, I think I like the way you were talking about how 
there was a time when people who were demonized for their mental distress were um, were treated horribly, and and I think about the conditions that they lived in in some of these asylums. And I investigated a lot of these asylums when I was filming Crooked, Crooked Beauty. Um, they were in a state of disrepair. We had a break into them, and I was filming in them. And I was really stunned at how the, they, they were like jails. Um, and so I thought, well, then I want the film frame itself, when people are sitting in the theater, to have a different kind of architecture I want them to look at the films in a way where they don't feel jailed or trapped um, in in the madness of the the story or the speaking subjects experiences. So I'm trying in my films to create a more compassionate place visually and um, in terms of the content for people to experience not only the stories of the the of of whom the film is about, but their own stories. I want the films to create um, a place for uh, uh, introspection, um, transformation, and collective healing. Thank you, and thank you so much for being with us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Ken Paul Rosenthal's film, Whisper Rapture, will be playing this week, Saturday, June 2nd at 10 a.m. in Crown Hall at the Mendocino Film Festival. If you would like to listen to this interview again online, you can go to kzyxfm.org or you can go to our website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org, and the interview will be available. Thank you again for listening to today's broadcast and looking forward to to seeing you next time. This is Dr. Richard Miller saying goodbye. I see trees of green Red roses too I see them blue For me and you And I think to myself What a wonderful world Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller.